Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast with your host, Charles Cantu, CEO and founder of Reset Digital. I'm Mike Berberich, Director of Marketing Futures and the producer of this podcast. For decades, if a brand wanted to master an emerging trend or technology, they had two choices, find an established company to hire or build the capability in-house. But in recent years, a third option has emerged, corporate venture capital. Unlike other venture capital firms, which are solely looking for the most profitable turnaround on their investments, the objective of corporate VC firms is to get in on the ground floor of the next game-changing innovation and use early learnings from startups as a competitive advantage. We spoke with Jessica Peltz, partner at MDC Ventures, about the different reasons why a brand would get into corporate VC and what she feels are the trends every marketer should have their eye on. Let's go. So, Jessica, tell us about yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey with MDC Ventures. D is in discovery. Um, tell us a little bit about you and them. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here. So like most VCs, I had a very winding road to get to where I am today. Um, I grew up in the media agency world. So I spent the first decade of my career uh, at a global media agency. Most of that was at Zenith Media. Um, and there I was running the strategy for a lot of different brands. Sure. Um, but I was fortunate to be running Verizon Wireless's integrated print and digital strategy from 2009 to 2012. Um, and looking back at that period, it was such a huge inflection point for mobile and this shift in consumer behavior. Um, I was part of the team that launched the Android device with the campaign Droid Does. Um, we thought maybe only millennial males were going to buy it. Um, but that really got me interested in pivoting my career more towards mobile and emerging technology. Mm -hmm. So I, I naturally became that person at the agency that was tracking trends, tracking consumer behavior. I did the first tablet sponsorships with Time Inc. for Verizon. Um, and as part of that journey, I, I started working with startups on the side and just immediately fell in love with the space and fell in love with working with entrepreneurs that were just solving these big problems and really changing the landscape. You know, back in 2011, 2012, this was, this was still pretty brand new in the New York tech ecosystem. You had Entrepreneurs Roundtable was just launching, um, which is now one of the top accelerators in the country. So I started working with startup founders on the side, mentoring them, helping them learn about brands and marketing and how to get their first customers. And I really recognized that there was this deficiency at the time in connecting brands and startups and helping them learn from each other. At that point, I, I kind of got the bug a little bit and I knew that I wanted to go get operating experience at a startup. Uh, so I had left in 2012 to join an early stage startup called Evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, we were one of the first innovation boutiques in, in the scene. And we did just that. We were working with brands like Kraft Foods and Unilever and Mondelez to provide more context around the startup landscape, match them up with different technology solutions to solve their business needs, help them get a proof of concept, help them learn how to do a pilot test, scale it across the organization. As part of that, when I was helping them scale the business, we built out a partnership network of just hundreds of different accelerators and venture funds and shared workspaces from around the world. Mm -hmm. So when a brand would come to us, we could basically tap into our network around the world and just get an influx of startup talent that way. 
Um, it was through that network that I had a relationship with a fund here in New York called First Round Capital, who ultimately had recommended me to this role to, to run MDC Ventures. At the time, it was KBS Ventures. Uh, so that's how I transitioned into corporate VC. And you know, my vision for corporate VC is that our investment thesis should be fueled by these white spaces and these pain points that we see in the market as domain experts. And we should be testing and learning with the startups in our portfolio. So it creates a really nice feedback loop for us as a corporation and a strategic advantage for us at MDC Ventures for MDC Partners because it's enabling us to have access to these trends and these entrepreneurs that we otherwise wouldn't see for 12 to 24 months when they're ready to commercialize and scale. Maybe it would be good to take a sidestep or a lateral step to just share a little bit about MDC in general, like what what that group is, who's included in the, in the group of agencies that would be leveraging some of the innovation that you guys are investing in. Sure. It might be good to, to give the audience a little bit of understanding around that. Sure. So I'll, um, so I'll talk a little bit about MDC and also about just what is corporate venture, just to demystify that for listeners a little bit too. Yep. Um, so we're a, a corporate VC, which means we invest off the balance sheet of our parent company, MDC Partners. Uh, MDC Partners is a global holding company for advertising agencies. We own over 40 agencies around the world, world-class brands like 72 and Sunny, Anomaly, Assembly, Crispin and Porter. So our core business is working with Fortune 500 brands to pr- help them produce some of the world-class creative branding media strategies that you see in market today. Uh, our venture arm is really designed to invest and identify early stage companies addressing the needs of the modern CMO. So we see it really as a strategic benefit to help um, accelerate a lot of our innovation efforts in R&D. Corporate VC is very different than traditional VC, traditional venture capital. So whereas traditional venture capital, Sequoia, Andreessen Horowitz, some of the funds you might be familiar with from Sand Hill Road, they're strictly there to deliver financial returns to their investors. Mm -hmm. So they raise a fund from limited partners, deploy capital into companies in exchange for equity, help them scale and build those companies in the hopes of getting a liquidity event, meaning hopefully they get acquired for billions of dollars or they IPO. So they're specifically for financial returns. Corporate VCs, on the other hand, tend to have more motivations around the strategic benefits of investing in companies. So most corporate VCs are investing off the balance sheet, um, but it's more so for the purposes of how can I better understand a new business line? How can I understand innovations? Is this a new type of R&D for us? So corporate VC has been around for for decades. Do you you actually do you know the first example of corporate VCs? I don't, but I can't wait for you to tell me. So this is, this is actually a really good um, party trivia fact, if you want it. Um, so back in 1914, uh, the first, one of the first case studies we have of corporate VC is DuPont investing in General Motors. Mm. So at the time, you know, DuPont, obviously manufacturer of plastics and, and chemicals, and they had the foresight to recognize that you know, there was an increased demand for cars around the war. So they basically took a bet and put $25 million into this budding company, General Motors, because they recognized that if they could help accelerate their growth, they in turn have been a, DuPont had been a supplier of artificial leather and plastics and paint. So it's kind of like a really good example of this symbiotic relationship between a, a corporate and a startup in a way that can be mutually beneficial for both. Um, fast forward to today, 
the last five years, corporate VC has just been exploding. Um, I think five years ago, there's maybe 150 corporate venture funds out there. Today, there's over 750 that they're tracking. Um, about a third of them have been within the last 12 months. So corporate VC is becoming a very meaningful player in the tech and startup ecosystem. They deployed about $53 billion across about 2,700 companies, 2,700 deals last year. So for a founder, when you're taking capital from a corporate VC, you know that you're getting access to a customer that could help accelerate a commercial arrangement. Um, You're getting domain expertise, could be an acquirer down the road, you never know. Um, But for corporates and for brands, it's, it's really kind of this concept of future-proofing your business. Mm -hmm. So I I love this quote that that I had read of um, the Blockbuster CEO. This is maybe back in 2008. And and he said, Netflix isn't even on our radar yet in terms of a competition. And it's just, it's it's mind-blowing to think about because obviously, like, if they had a corporate venture arm and had they invested in Netflix, you know, where would they be today? So I think this concept of understanding what are some of these new trends that are really disrupting your, your category or your industry um, can really be make or break for a lot of these brands. And I think you're seeing that come through now with more and more corporate venture funds popping up. So I'm also curious to know, as having been an entrepreneur on multiple occasions, what is the entrepreneur? So we have a lot of listeners that are you know, brands and marketers that have great ideas, and I'm sure they're going to be calling you once we give your contact <laughs> information. But um, what are they giving up? So what, what am I giving up to be a part because I understand normal VC and, mm-hmm. and where I come from, they call it vulture capital. So and some I'm sure of them, you've heard not that before. I'm us. assuming yours is a little <laughs> bit different. So maybe you can give me some of the nuance and then kind of yeah. um, how it works. Like what, what are sure. people giving up and what's the process? So um, it's a wide range of characters. Sure. I won't say that we are all vulture capitals. There's, there's <laughs> many of us who are lovely to work with. That's a whole, sep- that's a whole separate conversation. But um, in terms of what our founders giving up, it, it really depends on the nuances of, of your financing and your round. So mm-hmm. a lot of um, corporate VCs, we're, we're investing alongside some of the top funds. The most recent investment we made, you know, we co-invested alongside Bain Capital and Founder Collective, two of the top funds in the country. So corporate VCs are often investing on the same terms as traditional VCs. What the founder gives up is, is a different conversation. It depends how much capital you're putting into the company, what the post-money valuation is, if you have any side deals around the commercial arrangement or exclusivity. Um, we personally, you know, we, we believe our success is the startup success, so we don't do anything like blocking out competitors or things like that. We, we want the founder to succeed. We want to help escalate and, and, and um, accelerate their growth, not hinder it. But at the same time, a benefit for us is, again, we we were one of the first companies that spotted conversational commerce as a trend back in 2015. And it was because we had invested in this company, Message.ai, which at the time was a very small company in stealth mode. You know, fast forward, they got accepted into Y Combinator, moved out to the West Coast. Dick Costello was on their board, and AdAge just named them as a startup finalist of the year in 2018. That enabled us as a, as a brand and as a corporate to spot this trend of conversational commerce and start talking about it well before the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to educate marketers on what are the implications of this trend? How do, how do you make it accessible? How do you test and learn with it? So for us, having a corporate venture arm just enables us to have access to learn from these entrepreneurs, learn the problems that they're solving and the questions that they're answering that we might not have thought of yet. 
Yep. That was a great answer. So essentially, guys, you don't know what you're giving up until you have the conversation and then it's all original conversations, it sounds like, right? So it's every business is different. Every situation totally, is different. It totally depends on your... The synergy between the corporations and what these founders absolutely. could bring to the table and, is different. And the founders need to know what they're comfortable with. And I think that the founders need to have really um, transparent, open dialogues with the corporate about what their expectations are and what their limits are. But, you know, if you want to say broad strokes, if the founder is raising a $3 million round at a $10 million valuation, I mean, it's pretty easy to figure out if you're a corporate putting in a million dollars, what percent equity you're getting. That's right. So there's all different deal terms. There's all different deal structures. So in terms of, of like what you're giving up, it, it just depends on the nuances of the financing yep. and, and what that relationship looks like. Perhaps even reframing it, it's less about what you're giving up. What I'm, The advice that I'm hearing come out of that is know what you're worth before you come to the table. Um, huh. And make sure that you've been very versed on, you know, proper valuation and have the right team in place before you come talk to someone. Absolutely. Like and, and as a founder, you should recognize that, you know, there's a lot of value that the corporate can bring to the table, again, in the form of domain expertise, customer introductions, validation. So as a founder, you should be asking the brand or the corporate VC, you know, can you show me some case studies? Can I talk to other founders in your portfolio just to get a sense of what that working relationship looks like? Mm-hmm. Um it could be hugely valuable or it could be empty promises. So the founders should just be doing their diligence too. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So tell us a little bit about some of those trends that you're seeing and the ones that you're most excited about. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them. So, so something that we've been thinking a lot about, um, first and foremost, is, is we've reframed our thesis around data and analytics. So, so we've been thinking a lot about this, this concept of responsible intelligence. Um, and what we mean by that is, you know, you know, last year was such a year of mistrust. I think there was a huge awakening around consumer privacy. Um, obviously, there was a Cambridge Analytica scandal. And what that comes to is consumers are recognizing that they are the product. Um, and with that, beca- can, can damage a lot of business models out there. But we believe that's also a source of innovation for new types of business models. Um, so we're really bullish about some of these permission-based um, companies that are coming out. Um, a company like Perksy is a great example of that, where it's all um, permission-based data for the benefit of um, not only from the consumer, so they know how is their data being collected and how is it being used, but also what are they getting in return for that? So how is it a mutually beneficial relationship? Um, something that I think is becoming increasing, increasingly rampant is, is that fraud is very scalable not just in the context of media impressions and ad impressions, but also panel fraud. So if you think about that as a marketer in the context of your research, you you want to know that you are working with a clean panel that is self-reported and that is opt-in. So this company, Perksy, that we recently invested in has put in place patented proprietary measures to make sure that there is no bot frauds because they know exactly who they're targeting because it's all self-reported based on their mobile-first app for millennials and Gen Z. Um, they also have different metrics built in where you're physically pressing down on the button for a limited amount of time. So the, the system understands that it's not a robot. There's no way to game the system. So this concept of responsible intelligence is really around how can you be providing value? How can you have transparent value to the person you are collecting data from in exchange to get what you need from an insights perspective? I think that that, that disclosure is, is something that we're just going to see more and more of in place of third-party data. Yep. Val- value exchange. I think it's all, the whole thing, the whole ecosystem is going to value exchange, so that makes sense. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit, um, or talk to me a little bit about voice 
Um, and, you know, I was reading something the other day in regard to, like, that's, you know, voice search is the next big thing, and <laughs> no one's really talking about it. And then I, I was looking in our notes at, you know, for your, your or my discussion, and it came up. Yeah. So I'd love to hear what your, your thoughts are there. Yeah, so there's, um, there's so much to unpack with voice. Um, we've all seen the stats that by next year, 50% of searches are going to be voice search. Um, and, you know, that's probably about right, especially with millennials and, and Gen Z. Probably two, two main concepts that I think are important to talk about in relation to voice search is, is number one, you know, marketers and, and brands and agencies are, are often so obsessive about visually driven touch points. What does my logo look like? What does my look and feel look like? What does my website look like? That's only half of the equation. So with the rise of voice, it really becomes a, a, a shift into not only what does my brand look and feel like, but how does my brand sound and feel? So this concept of designing for audio um, is still pretty new. There's a lot of science behind it. You know, I could, I could play the Jaws theme right now and you could immediately be like, ah, scary, something's gonna happen. Or I could play the McDonald's jingle and you're gonna think like, happy, upbeat. So, so this, this sonic branding is becoming more and more prevalent and more and more part of the creative process that marketers need to start thinking about. You know, consumers are gonna be talking to you. What are you gonna say back? So when you think about what are you going to say back, it's, it's not only what are you, literally what are you going to say back, it's how is that going to sound? Does it need to sound different for different audiences? Um, so companies like Veritonic are, are doing some brilliant work around helping brands understand what sounds and what tones and what voices resonate with their audiences. So that's, that's not only voiceovers and does males perform better than females, but it can be what accent should I use? What dialect should I use? If I'm targeting Hispanic, should I, should I be speaking to them in Spanish versus English versus maybe a combination of the two? And brands need to recognize that this is a much more colloquial tone that they need to develop. Um, so thinking about this concept of designing for audio and how does that relate to the creative process in a data-driven way is, is going to be incredibly important in this new voice era. The second piece of that, which has kind of been keeping me up at night a little bit, is, is this concept that consumer purchase behavior is, is going to become a string of defaults. And what I mean by that is if you think about voice commerce, which is projected to be over $80 billion in the next five years, you know, our, our purchase behavior is going from being at a store, browsing, walking through aisles, to browsing websites, to, to now just mere words. So if, if I'm a brand, you know, I better make sure that I'm in that consideration set. So that's something that obviously Amazon plays a huge role in. Um, and, and a stat that I just found so eye-opening is, is that 85% of purchases on Amazon are Amazon-recommended products. So if you just take a minute to think about, to think about that, what are Amazon, what are Amazon recommended products? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, but, right. but it's so true. I mean, as, as a marketer, you, you have to be thinking about that. So, you know, we've been thinking a lot about this this concept of point of sale marketing as like really digital media 3.0, that this mm -hmm. bottom of the funnel point of sale marketing, um, which we really see as, you know, do you understand and have context around your digital shelf? So just thinking about it in the context of, you know, 85% of, of these purchases on, on Amazon are recommendations. If I'm in, in voice commerce and I say, order me diapers, how do they know that I want? Pampers versus Huggies. So if you basically are not in your purchase history, if you're not an Amazon choice product, which keep in mind is like this, this super secret algorithm that Amazon has, which is a combination of 
delivery speed, ratings and reviews, product availability, um, their margins, yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of different things. Like you can't buy Amazon Choice data. So if you lose that, your sales can plummet. If you get it, your sales sure. can, can really accelerate. That's right. So if you're not in your purchase, if you if you're not in your purchase history, if you're not an Amazon Choice product, or if you're not an Amazon Basics product, which keep in mind, Amazon has been very quietly building out this huge empire of private label brands, not to mention their recent acquisition of Whole Foods. So now all the 365 is, are under their umbrella. You're really fighting this uphill battle as, as a brand to get that exposure and to get into that consideration set. So when we think about this next era of voice and voice commerce, it's also wildly important to understand what is your your visibility on the digital shelf and how can you figure out the best way to optimize that presence. I love it. I love it. One one of the things and the key ingredient in that algorithm is your ranking, meaning yeah. your rating. If you are below a four, forget mm -hmm. about it. You're gone. Totally. Um, so that's something that people need to know. And but this whole sight, sound, and motion, cognitive theory around audio, uh, pitch, tone, rate, all those things, cadence are going to matter. So, you know, Absolutely. you heard it here first, guys. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing with, with Amazon that, that is so fascinating is that it, it also introduces a whole new competitive set. So, you, you know, you go to Walmart, you, you go to your retailers. I mean, you basically know who's in your competitive set online. You know who's in your competitive set. On Amazon, you have so many long-tail brands that are just creeping up in the category that were started on Amazon. They understand the nuances of this ecosystem so much better. You know, with Amazon, with Amazon SEO, it's, it's not like Google where you're sending to a static link. You need to have an entirely separate expertise around Amazon to understand all the different dynamic levers. Um, so we're really bullish about a company called Gradient.io. Um, it's out of Seattle. It was started by... Um, the ex-head of global ad operations at Amazon. So literally, I don't think anybody in the world understands Amazon better than this, better than Bobby. Um, but the point is that there are different data points that you can be using, actually hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of data points that you can use between the retail API and the, and the advertising API to figure out what is my digital shelf presence, who are my competitors, what are my sales rankings, and how do I create the best recipe for success? That's right, right. So you cut the crap out of the out of the play, which just can't realize a profit. <laughs> yeah. So talk, yeah. let's talk a little yeah. bit about D 2 C, right? Because that's yeah. a that's a piece to this puzzle, and mm -hmm. it's it's on your trends. Yes. So so let's have at it. So so this is actually a nice contrast to Amazon. So so if you look at Amazon, like Amazon's kill zone is around their product selection. It's around their delivery speed. It's around their convenience. What Amazon lacks is that emotional connection. And that's an area that hmm. D2C really shines through. Mm -hmm. um, so D2C has, has really kind of nailed this, this intersection of commerce, content, and community. Um, and they're starting to bring that to retail. So what I think is really interesting is just how they're, how they're starting online. You know, D2C brands are so data-driven. They're obsessed with controlling the customer experience and the data. Um, and that's something that they really recreate in the retail environment. A lot of these are optimized for social. Mm -hmm. um, so you go to a D2C store, whether it's Lively or Allbirds or Bonobos or Away, and you know, you see hashtags on the walls, on the mirrors, you see yeah. photo booths. And I think that there are just like some really interesting trends around the differences between retail spaces of D2C brands and the retail and traditional retail spaces. Um, 
they're often really minimalistic. You know, mm-hmm. D2C brands recognize that, that you know, you just kind of need sizing and you want to know texture. Yep. And then they create experiences and programming. Lively, which is a phenomenal brand that just launched their first retail store, something, something like only 30% of the store is actually products. The rest of it is around community events for their customers. They do things like calligraphy or yoga or watercolors. And it's really a way to connect with like-minded individuals in a way that's an extension of their brand experience. So this concept of, of both data around where you're placing some of these pop-up stores mm-hmm. um, combined with these Instagrammable experiences. You know, Winky Lux, um, which is this uh, makeup brand for, for Gen Zs, they were actually charging for tickets to their store. Oh, wow. Which is crazy. I, I mean, if you think about that as a traditional retailer, like you are literally having people buy a ticket to have a slot into when they can go visit your store. And then they had created eight different really Instagrammable experiences that reflected the brands. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you could use the, the fee of your ticket. It was maybe 10 bucks, whatever it is as a credit towards a store purchase or, but it's guaranteeing revenue for That's every right. person that comes in the door. So, you know, I don't think retail is dead at, at all. I think some of these mundane retail experiences are. Yep. Um, and I just think if you look at kind of the contrast between some of these D2C brands and, and how they're creating this minimalist community driven vibe with, um, with store associates that understand the history of the brand, they understand what the brand stands for, they understand the textures and the fabrics that come from the brands, like contrast mm-hmm. that with some of these big box traditional retails, like it's it's hugely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really believe the future of, of retail are, are these in-store experiences. Um, and there's more and more companies that are helping to advocate um, for pop-up retail shops, like something like Uppercase, which is basically mm-hmm. pop-up shops in a box in a very data-driven way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so, are you seeing any big brands um, doing D to C well outside of the acquisition play? Right, because everywhere that I look, it's it's predominantly like acquisition versus yeah. build or JV. So I'm just curious if you're seeing anything else and what you're looking for when you guys are looking at investments in that space. So when so first of all, we we specifically are investing in B two B digital media marketing tech companies. So mm-hmm. we as a corporate venture fund wouldn't invest in a D2C brand. Yeah. Um, but the way that we think about commerce convergence in the context of our thesis is we, we really break it down into three buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first bucket is, is we think about this concept of digital identity infrastructure. And what we mean by that is, you know, you used to be able to purchase in the store or on their website. And now there's so many other places that you can purchase and transact. Um, We're interested in some companies um, that are providing the infrastructure and the pipes for a new infrastructure for brands to convert and sell products. So there's one company, uh, Blue Tag, that we really like. Um, that's doing something like that for, for smart speakers. So if you don't transact on Amazon, you can still transact via smart speakers um, mm-hmm. through BlueTag's platform. Um, another pillar we look at in, in the commerce space is uh, uh, emerging search. So this kind of ties back to what I was saying um, around how our, how our world our world is kind of becoming a string of defaults. And so when I, when I say emerging search, I mean visual search and voice search because, you know, we're, we're kind of at this end of serendipitous discovery. So how do you get discovered through voice? How do you get discovered through more intuitive visual search? So that's something we're spending a little bit of time on. Um, And the last bucket in that category is around personalized customer service. 
So that can be how are you connecting online and offline? How can you create something that is personalized? Again, thinking about responsible intelligence as a backdrop of that mm-hmm. in a way that gives consumers what they need, both in the context of an experience that they're comfortable in, while also servicing them in a way that is, um, that's going to resonate with them, both from a product selection standpoint and from an experience standpoint. Fascinating. Let's talk about things that you're most excited about. So companies that you're seeing. Excited about all that stuff. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> what are you most not excited enough. about? It? No, absolutely not. <laughs> like, how, are, how are our listeners going to get in, investment from see um, What do they need to be so doing? Aside, so aside from um, some of the trends that I had just talked about, which I just find fascinating and just an exciting next next chapter in our, in our industry, yep. um, I'm really excited about some of the shifts we're seeing in creative production. One company in particular, Catch and Release, is helping to accelerate found content as a medium. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's just not sustainable to be spending half a million, a million dollars plus on on a 30 second spot. Like, it's just not necessary anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I can build a house for 150 grand. You're telling me that in most parts of the country. You're telling me I can't create a 30 second commercial. So what this concept basically means is, is that brands need you to create more content faster at the same budget. There's no secret there. So original production is is really not scalable anymore. It doesn't necessarily meet the needs of speed for our industry. Um, So to complement original production, um, you can have found content. And, you know, we have billions of smart devices and and smartphones on the market now that are creating beautifully shot content. The camera resolution is phenomenal. And you have all these amateur photographers, some are amateur, some are professional, that are enabling you to create raw, authentic content for significantly cheaper and significantly faster. So the problem with that is that finding the perfect shot, this perfect found content, require it's a, it's a really labor-intensive task. So you can search basically anything with a public link, whether it's Vimeo or Instagram or YouTube, whatever it is. But that's a really labor-intensive task. And then you have to figure out the rights management. You have to clear it. it it's a huge to-do with business affairs. Um, so catch and release, what they do is they basically automate that process for you. So the way that we envision it is that you know the, the creative directors of tomorrow are going to be the curators of the open web. So something that we're constantly thinking about is, you know, a creative director might have a specific vision for a commercial and, and, you know, maybe you just absolutely have to be in that beer hall in Munich for Oktoberfest and like, that's great. You should shoot that, achieve that vision. But guess what? The other 23 seconds of that spot has probably already been shot somewhere on the internet. So think about what you want that overall tone and that overall narrative to be of, of, of your content. Start with, what can I find online that I can license? How much is that going to cost? Keep in mind, you can also be much more nimble in terms of budget, in terms of switching things out, in terms of scaling it across a lot of different platforms. Figure out what is going to, what can I find online that's going to achieve my vision? And then figure out what do I need to shoot from an original standpoint? It's not meant to replace original production. It's meant to complement it in a way that works with marketers' needs today around getting more content faster. So it's enabling marketers and brands to just work a lot smarter. Very cool. What are some of the things that people are trends that people are saying are so exciting that are just not there yet? Like, what are you, what are you like, meh, not yet? Um, 
I would probably have to say blockchain, which like <laughs> which kind of like pains me to say because because I, I am very bullish on blockchain in, in the long run. Um, I think it can be transformative for not only our industry but multiple industries. Um, but I feel like we're 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 barely in the like. AOL dial-up modem days mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. of blockchain. Um, so, so that's probably one that we're definitely learning about. Um, we're exploring, but you know, when we make investments, we want to understand how can we add value and help commercialize this company in the next six, 12, 18 months. Mm-hmm. And I just think we're we're still a little far off on sure. blockchain. Sure. Um, so, there's a question or a set of questions that I generally ask everybody. And, okay. and one of those questions is, you know, what are your thoughts on diversity and inclusion um, in our industry and in, at large yeah. as well? So being in the venture capital community, it, it is very apparent that I'm constantly the only woman in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, with that becomes an opportunity and you rise to the occasion. So I actually um, started the Women in Venture Capital group here in New York uh, with Su Tian Dong, who's one of the partners at Female Founders Fund. We've since scaled that to 300 women uh, here, here in here. New York City. But then we also launched um, the global directory of women in venture capital as a way to create a sense of community and enable women investors to connect with each other, learn from each other, share deal flow. Um, we've now scaled that to over 900 women um, wow. across over 600 venture funds in 29 countries. I love that. So we're actually going to be publishing um, some research next week around the global state of women in VC. And, you know, the goal is, is to really kind of debunk some myths Mm-hmm. Um, women are not only investing in retail and consumer. The, the number one sectors women are actually investing in are healthcare, uh, fintech, and enterprise, followed by consumer and SaaS and AI and things like that. So, you know, for us as MDC partners, um, MDC Ventures is obviously a, a, a part of that. Um, you know, we have a strong commitment to gender diversity and inclusion. We mm-hmm. see this as just a natural extension of that initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really proud to be leading it. Just seeing these women come together around the world, it's something that's been happening for decades in the venture community with, with a lot of our male counterparts. So the way that we've organized is just going to make, hopefully, um, a, ba- a big difference in, in gender diversity in the tech community. I strongly believe, maybe I'm biased, but, you know, it's okay. I strongly believe that New York will be the market that changes the gender balance in in tech in particular. It's just, you know, you see women in leadership positions across every single industry. So for us, it's it's very different than Silicon Valley, which which has a very long history of of this bro culture. Um, Mm -hmm. So we're really excited to be leading the charge and um, excited to be part of it. I love that. I'm excited to hear about it. Hashtag see her, right? Fantastic. Um, And then, so, you know, we talked about this, but now's the the moment of truth. Okay. Favorite album of all time and what you're listening to now and both why. So favorite album of all time, I'm probably going to have to say Abbey Road from the Beatles. Wow. Um, And and that's probably because number, number one just reminds me of home. Uh, I'm from Minnesota, which you can really only hear when I say I'm from Minnesota. Um, so it kind of reminds me of how my parents are big Beatles fans. Um, and my daughter, who's, who's 16 months, her name is Rhea, and we call her Rhea Sunshine. So she loves hearing the song, Here Comes the Sun. I love it. Um, so I'd say that that's probably been like 
hitting close to home for me lately. Um, and what I'm listening to right now is, is I'm actually gonna, gonna throw a curveball and say more podcasts than music right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love the podcast, um, Masters of Scale. Marketing is, Futures? Is awesome. oh, Marketing Futures, obviously, of course. <laughs> of course. That is a go-to, always. Um, <laughs> listening to, Seed to um, Masters of Scale a lot. Seed mm-hmm. to Scale is another really good one. Yeah. Um, and then I've also gotten really into Blinkist lately, mm. which is an app that's, that's sort of cliff notes of, of books. So mm. it's a really quick way to just devour a, a lot of books that I would love to read but don't always have the time. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm a big audio first person, clearly. Sure. Um, but I'd say favorite album, probably Abbey Road. And um, what I'm listening to is, is going to be some sort of podcast around. Te- oh, the, De- the Decrypted podcast by Bloomberg is really good, too. Um, so I'm, I'm just constantly devouring as many podcasts as I can. I love that. I love that. Um, so how do people get in touch with you? How do they find you? Where are you speaking next? Let's, you know, shameless plug. What, what, yeah, what's on there? Um, I would say probably the easiest is find me on Twitter at Jessica Peltz. Mm-hmm. Uh, my contact information is pretty easily accessible on our website, mdcventures.vc, um, or on LinkedIn. Um, like I mentioned, speaking next. Um, just came back from South by had yep. an awesome panel um, about sonic branding with FMB, one of our one of our partner agencies, mm-hmm. um, and Pandora and Veritonic, um, and then speaking a little bit about this new research we're publishing uh, about great. the global state of women in VC. So stay tuned. Awesome, we'll do that. All right, heard it here first. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast. If you have an idea for a future topic or guest, shoot us a line at marketingfutures at ana.net. Make sure to subscribe to the Marketing Futures podcast on the Apple Podcast Network and leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, for more insights and resources to help you prepare for the future of marketing, head on over to marketingfutures.ana.net.